0: This is PolyOptics,
1: shining a light onto the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Steve Silverman. Thanks for
2: joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. We have a great show today. First of all, it's my birthday. I want to get that out of the way, June 21st. the Longest day of the year, so I'm feeling pretty good today. My uh, three guests, uh, all are are, are terrific. Uh, All have dealt with issues around the politics and challenges of working people. Uh, That's kind of the theme that came together. Uh, Peter Carlin is the author of Bruce, the recent very successful biography of Bruce Springsteen, uh, who has just, of course, wrapped up his High Hopes tour uh, after about two years on the road. Gene Sperling, who just recently left the White House, where he was chair of President Obama's National Economic Council and who had the same role for President Clinton. He probably knows more about where policy, politics, and image come together than virtually anyone going. And Kevin Morris, a Hollywood power broker who represents some of the biggest names in Hollywood, just published his very first book, A Collection of Short Stories, White Man's Problems. Kevin, an old and good friend from our Cornell days, welcome to Polyoptics, and uh, congratulations. You have a, a terrific book here. Thanks Steve, thanks for having me on. What a what a what a career. Um uh, you uh you've just written this uh this great book, White Man's Problems, uh, an overnight sensation nearly 50 years in the making. How does it feel? <laughs>
1: uh it feels it feels uh <laughs> feels weird.
3: It, it, it feels weird. I've been working on the book for a long time, so uh um it, it, feel, it feels great to get it out, and it's, um, it's very rewarding to present it to, to, to my friends and uh, to people, and then to gradually to the public.
2: Oh, my God, I'm, I'm sure. And we're going to get to some of the reviews and a little bit about the book. But before we get there, uh, tell us a little bit. You're at Cornell. Um, you're, you're going to law school at NYU. You've got a great career. You grew up in New Jersey. Um, tell us kind of about those early days and how that influenced the writing, and how would you end up in L.A.?
3: Um, well I actually grew up near New Jersey I grew up I grew up in uh, the very southeastern corner of Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia between Philadelphia and Chester actually mm-hmm. in strangely enough a town called Media
2: um and I, like um, I just read about that in one of your stories with uh, well, that slip not slipstream one of them right yeah, uh, Mike's
0: <laughs> yeah Mike, I think uh, here comes Mike, yeah. here, comes
2: Mike here, yes. here,
3: here comes Mike's character comes home um, but basically uh, you know, I, I think I'm the the my my, my grandfather, and my father and a lot of the men in my family uh were guys who worked at the oil refineries uh you know, that that exist where the Delaware River kind of hits southern Philadelphia and Chester, sort of the Sun Oil and and then the surrounding kind of plants around there. So my grandfather worked for Sun Oil, my father worked for a waste supply company there. So so it's near Marcus hook Pennsylvania. There's some uh, that's sort of the area <coughs> that I came out of. Um,
2: working class, hard working. Yeah, blue, blue uh, car, the hard helmet. You know, hard hard, helmet. hard
3: hard hat, hard hat area for sure. Oil refineries are not uh, everybody thinks of them as Texas, but there are uh, anybody that's you know anybody that's flown into Philadelphia
2: knows uh, what the Delaware River looks like down there. So oh, man. driving through New Jersey, <laughs> getting to Pet Philadelphia, boy, I yeah. know it. I know it too well. Yeah. <laughs> And so, um, did that, you know, those were influential years, obviously. You end up at Cornell, which is not a whole lot of hard hat kids are, are there. How does that, you know, we talked about it a long time ago. How did that feel being at Cornell with uh, with that background? Well, you know, Cornell,
3: Cornell is an amazing place and it changed it changed my life and and uh you know get, getting there I mean as as a kid, you know, every kid faces their own challenges and everybody finds their own way. You know, uh I've I very much wanted to uh you know, I very much wanted to get 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 uh get to college somewhere outside of uh, where i was growing up um i went to a, a you know i went to a, a, a fine you know a public high school and and everybody was great um but i i really wanted to get uh you know away to a great school and cornell proved to be that for me and met you guys guys like you and uh met a lot of really um uh uh just interesting people who opened the world up to me and and i would say that uh you know um uh, getting to getting to Cornell opened up opened me up to a world of, of of politics and government and literature and history and uh and also Bruce Springsteen and some of the other stuff your your guests are going to talk about today. <laughs> you know, and um uh, you know, I I mean I was already into Bruce but <laughs> I'll state yeah, that good, for the record. The record re- but we but, but we you know we, we that was our that was our era and uh and and um it was It was just very eye opening to me and i think uh helped me um um see that see that the world was a big place and that anything was possible so running into a lot of running into a lot of other people and, and uh, you know at a place like that was was really really helpful for me because I got to
2: I, I got to think of the world as a bigger place and you and you built relationships uh, you've written a lot with uh, Glenn Ouchler, Professor Kramnick is, is a friend who you really bonded a lot of folks don't spend the time at college being able to bond you certainly have certainly did that that must have made an impact on you
3: well yeah and I got I think I got lucky with uh especially with Glenn uh Professor Professor Glenn Altschuler who's kind of a legend at Cornell he really took me under his wing and uh and he's done that with an, a number of people and you know I mean he's still uh uh, he still tells me what to do at fifty. <laughs> he's, he's, he's 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 you know a real strong influence in my life. And then you know uh... we had some sort of storied professors, as you know, up there, and and uh, and and I was lucky enough to continue good, great relationships with with one or two of them, and. uh... You know, uh, I, I, I was I was very fortunate,
2: very very fortunate. So, so you leave Cornell uh, mid eighties, you head down to New York, you go to NYU Law School, um, and then you kind of make it out to to LA. Uh, the law school time, anything you know instructive about that that our listeners should know about?
3: Well, no, I mean I just think it's it's interesting for those of us you know in middle age now to speak for uh, yourself. I, I've been thinking, I was thinking about this a lot. I speak for myself, right? Um, I was, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. You, you know how the world has changed since, you know, because it's 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 changed gradually since sort of being at NYU Law School in the in the '80s, but it really has changed a lot. You know, I mean, um, that was the you know the the Reagan era and the crash of '87 happened, but you know it was the sort of yellow tie, bright light, big city um, thing, and uh, you know I think I think I think getting a getting a law degree back then you know you kind of you had the opportunity to sort of it was more old-fashioned uh than we than we realized i didn't get the opportunity to walk especially from you know unfortunately from from certain schools you had the ability to sort of to walk into um you know pretty high echelon jobs across the country and uh and you know i'm not sure that's the case today and i know that there's a there's a you know we, we go through different uh uh different phases in the number of lawyers we have in America and and uh you know it's it's it's, just, it's an interesting thing to think back about the 80s and being in law school in New York for me um it was a very uh you know 85 to 88 was a very interesting period i i hated law school uh i did not like the reagan era i did not like being in new york during the reagan era um very very much i was uh um you know i was i was sort of sort of uh turned off by the the yellow tie wall street thing <laughs> and so i didn't really know where i wanted to go but um i did have this sort of uh uh love of literature and love of pop culture a lot of, a lot of which um you know had had been helped along by my growing relationships with my friends in college like you and like others which is which was, you know which i think happens to most kids you know you get ex- you know you your, your friends become your friends because they oh you know in a lot of ways they help you uh explore and open up to to new influences and uh and uh, you know that certainly was the case for me. And so, it, uh, you know, my my, my the, you know the depth of my love for movies and records and and television and and uh, and 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 books and the things that I'd used as as escape mechanisms as I was as I was younger was only amplified. College and those were the last thing things that stayed with me. And I found law school, you know, uh, to be sort of a trade school <laughs> um, and 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 a stopover. I didn't know. I really, you know, like like a lot of people who become lawyers, I didn't know what I wanted to be, and I was in that sort of. Uh, you know that that uh, that straddle, that humanity straddle that you get into as as someone who's a politics or English or government or history major. You know, you 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 kind of you don't know what world you're straddling, so you kind of, especially back then, you would you would sort of default down to law school. And sure. I think I'm I'm squarely in that in that group, and that might sound familiar to you. No, I'm still straddling,
2: so I don't <laughs> know, but, you know. It's always an amalgamation. Uh, so you come out of New York, you, know, you head to LA. Um, you're gonna you're sorry, you're gonna be a lawyer, you arrive. Um, were you at a big firm? I, uh So I got my first job was at a was at a big
3: firm downtown. I was terrible at it. Uh there's a there's a there's a completely uh fictional story called Starting Out in my collection, but there are some loose associations uh in that story based on uh what it was like to come from New York and uh and landed a law firm in downtown LA, which is if you've been to LA, which is very different than the rest of LA. But in any event, um, I like a lot of people from the East Coast. I think I've come to learn. I, I thought of I, you know I, I, I wanted to be I wanted to, to be involved in Hollywood and I wanted to be involved in the business of motion pictures and television. But I kind of didn't think it was real on some level. There's some there's sometimes there's a sort of a gauzy kind of. Thing around the world of hollywood and and television like from 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 far away from as though as though you know it 's a thing you don't want to puncture as a fan mm-hmm. that you don 't want to get cl- too close right. to and and uh and i think i think uh once you get over that th- that 's a hard thing to get over and a lot of people don 't ever get over it i mean I, I can come home and talk about what i 'm doing and people just stare at me and like like just seem it just seems un- unreal but it's really it, it, once you get over that the fact that people are actually really out there doing it and functioning within it and that's the way people are are you know there's a lot of talented and smart people behind this you know these very good businesses once you realize that there's uh, a functionality you can provide in there um, um you, you can you're, you're, you're sort of off to the races so I, I, I start you know I, I, I had a I had a vague kind of a uh, Idea that I wanted to do what I do now, but I didn't know how about to go about doing it, so I got myself out there and in probably like the worst possible situation. I was a litigator for a business yes. you know for a business firm yeah. downtown doing uh you know uh you know d- defense work for fuel <laughs> fire cases <laughs> and um uh, yeah. but but i you know happily i i uh i was able to evolve into um into into what into what i do now
2: and what what's amazing um what you figured out a way to do is sort of be yourself and and you know you're a you know you're a I'm not an Armani kind of guy, uh, I hope that's not, I hope that's okay, you know, you're, you're handsome guy, but sure. you're not Mr. Armani. Um, and you're out there in a world of these, uh, you know, pop culture, etc. You found a way, really, to, to get in there and, and be at the very other stages of some of the folks who are the biggest talents in the world today. Uh, let's hear from one of them, um, uh, Mr. Matthew McConaughey. So, you're a freshman, right?
4: Yeah.
2: So tell me, man, how's this year's crop of freshman chicks look?
4: would
2: you gonna end up in jail sometime really soon
4: I know that fact. But... no man yeah. no I'll tell you yeah. that's what I love about these
2: high school girls man I get older they stay the same age <laughs> so so they um, that's Matthew McConaughey he's uh, a young uh, it's like 94 95 one of his very first roles and that's about when you when you met up with him right yeah I met him actually right when he he, he jumped in his uh he he was he was uh, a student at the
3: University of Texas, and he was cast in that part out of the blue, in um, in, by Rick by Rick McMutter. and uh, he after that he jumped in his uh in his pickup truck and he came to L.A. to 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 you know because people wanted to see him and 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 put him in movies and stuff like that, and I met him right after that, mm. and. Uh, I was reading no. he
2: almost didn't get it cuz he was too handsome. I think we you know we all have that problem sometimes, right? But he had to put on like wear a mustache and you know all that to <laughs> right. uh, be quite as handsome. So right. that uh, right, was based right. and confused I sh- I should say. So you meet up with them and you're both getting going and and what happens from there?
3: Well, I mean, you know, McConaughey is is you know that positive opinion that's out there in the world is 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 you know uh, you know and i'm i'm hardly objective but i will say that positive opinion that's out there and, and of him in the world is is really warranted you know he's he's just a good guy he, and and he was a good guy then he's a good guy now he's never he never blamed anybody else for anything that happened to him he's he's always you know uh been the same been the same guy that 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 I met you know 22 years ago um, and you know we, we we clicked as friends and I think you know the thing I would say about the Armani wearing thing is that um I, I think if I've been able to to if I can say one immodest thing it's just that I've been trying to come sort of comes out with the book too is that I've I think I probably have learned about myself over time that going to law school was was you know in some ways a, a dumb thing to do but in some ways a good thing to do because I'm'm I'm, I I've come to sort of realize about myself, like like a lot of us, that we have a creative side or an artist's heart, and uh, and you know, especially back then, uh, and uh, it's probably continuing to today. Yet, yeah, you, you find you end up in law school, but you still have the heart that you have for whatever. So, you know, an important thing for a lawyer to do is to find an underlying business that uh, that 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 appeals to their heart. So, what, what ended up happening with me is I ended up going into this field, and I quickly realized that. Um, that i could relate to uh relate to artists and uh and and that i took pleasure in in protecting them and in uh, protecting their interests and so you know a little bit of a rebellious you know guys that had a little bit of uh rebellious attitude i think um i was fortunate enough to, to come up to 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 meet uh several of those kinds of guys uh early on in my early on in my practice and you know maybe that was lucky
2: maybe that was meant to be I don't know but uh well, Matthew's you know. a working-class guy too as I was reading earlier I mean then maybe you bonded a little bit over that well definitely I mean, we bonded at the bar you know <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we, we, we bonded at the bar and, and uh you know and
3: and and he you know I, he's just a hell of a guy I can't say a, a, enough about him really and and you know and, and all, all, all of the you know all of the all of the hype is true he's he's a he's a very real very honest very human uh dude who is uh you know who is uh, who is who who you want to help and uh who is worthy of all the good praise that he's received
2: and then at the same time or around that time you meet up with a couple of young dudes named trey and matt let's hear a little bit from uh from from these guys work stan grandma said she poked you and you haven't sent a poke back
3: dad i didn't even want to do Stan,
2: poke your grandma so what happens now
3: stay here through the night, wait it out to see if they do anything. If we're still alive in the morning, then we'll know we're not dead.
4: (laughs) Give me a hard line to the phone, and I want choppers on the roof!
1: Who the hell are you?
4: Agent Fields, FBI. Hey, I'm in charge of this investigation. Not anymore, you're not. But that's not fair!
2: Well, of course, uh... South Park, uh... Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who who Kevin uh, also represents, uh... and you met them very early on, and they're still good friends uh, of yours today. And in fact, you did. I guess it's considered a really landmark deal in helping them figure out how to make the most of their South Park uh, assets. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we're going to talk about the book. I yeah, no, no, fine. No, it's
3: fine. It, it, it's, fine. It, it, it's a pleasure to talk about those guys too. So. You know also very early in my career when i when i when I just sort of set out on this path of being an entertainment lawyer um I was all by myself and I decided to go out on my own because you know I couldn't really get a job at one of the other firms and that was you know there's there's only a few firms that did and I couldn't really get a job so I went out on my own and i and and I was lucky enough to uh you know uh McConaughey joined up with me and a couple other great talented people joined up with me and then I met Trey and Matt at sundance and in in nineteen ninety one I was actually the early '90s was a great time for independent films, sort of right right before Sundance kind of got ruined or kind of got <laughs> kind of got went too far, you know. Uh-huh. Um, it, was, it was there was a lot of great stuff being made, and it was in the days before people made movies for five hundred thousand dollars. So so I got involved with some really cool guys, and there was sort of a great Venice, sort of. You know, scene going on where uh, you know the first first movie I worked on was the was for the producer of Repo Man and Sid and Nancy. He made a little independent film, and I was associate producer of that. And there was just a lot of good, cool people hanging out, a lot of artistic people doing stuff, and people realizing that they could. You know, make these indie films and Sundance. You know, I got a hand it, you really do have to hand it to Robert Redford. He created a revolution, and 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 uh, so anyway, anyway, in that context, in the early days of that, I think it was in 1991, I I went to Sundance with a film that I was uh, that that I had worked on, was an associate producer on, and I ran in, and and that's where I met Trey and Matt, and they had made a film uh, which uh, some of your listeners will know, that the, the 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 people that are deep fans will know. It's called uh, *Cannibal*, the musical. Which was a musical about the first, uh, mm. about the first guy ever committed in uh, the first guy ever convicted in American history of cannibalism, mm. named Alfred Packer. Um, but they had made it for eighty five thousand uh, dollars outside of Boulder, where they were going to school, and it was a musical. And they, they, <laughs> it had not even been uh, entered into the, film, the Sundance Film Festival. They showed it on the wall in a, <laughs> uh, in a rented conference room at the Yarrow Hotel. Guerrilla marketing. Uh, <laughs> And I saw it, and I just said, "All right, this is—you know—you needed to be a complete idiot not to <laughs> see that these guys are the biggest geniuses of all time." So, from that, that led to an incredible you know, twenty-plus year relationship. So, um, we we hooked up at—you know—we we they came to LA and they didn't know anybody, and they bounced around for a couple of years and did different different things, and then they uh, made. They made a little uh, five-minute video that everybody will remember, which was really the original. It, it's amazing how many things that Trey and Matt have done, which were the first of their form of media. But in my in my view, the, the spirit of Christmas is the first true viral video. It was truly a viral video. It was done on video cassette, and some people sent it out as Christmas. This Christmas gifts and it literally made its way around everyone in a viral fashion you know um you know before people sent stuff around on the internet or anything and you know it was so viral that the video that people started sending the video the VHS copies like in the mail got, well they also got it back themselves like their you know it was so viral that their friends like their friends <laughs> sent it back to them
2: they <laughs> check this out <laughs>
3: yeah so you know that gave way to South Park, and it, and then you know, you know, as their as their business guy, I, you know, I, I I could determine I determined in about three seconds that South Park. You could never bet against South Park and that South Park would work anywhere It was the unique entertainment property that would work anywhere wherever you took it whether it was t v or the, you know it became a hit show on television it moved a huge amount of video cassette units back when they didn't sell you know and another ground breaking place was that they didn't sell t v shows this is seventeen years ago they didn't sell t v shows as 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 video cassettes and there was no d v d then so South Park was the only show that was the first you know it was one of the first shows that ever even did that and a bazillion videos were so you know so it was another place that it broke ground and you know there was two gold records um soundtracks the movie came out it was nominated for an oscar for best song for blame canada <laughs> <laughs> um you know they you know it's still um it's still a uh, you know uh a a, a huge a huge hit and a sort of a a marker i think in the you know really a marker in the late 20th century i mean i think uh uh you know steven sondheim has said publicly that it's the best best musical of the latter part of the 20th century or something like that the the
2: the south park movie so Um, unbelievable and um you you know know, iconic it's it's culture it's, it's 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 Working people—it's it, it kind of you know now you have Broadway with Mormons. I mean, you these guys have done just amazing things, and 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 you're with them, and you're you're a key advisor to them. That's amazing. Um,
3: well, what's 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 what's
2: fascinating about well,
3: so, so you know the underlying thing is that South Park work anywhere, and then we've been able to so we have Comedy Central are great partners, and and they're, they're a division of Viacom, and what we've been able to do is take that incredible content over, and then over the years um... You know, use it as a uh, as as media has advanced and forms of media, and as the internet has advanced and different ways of exploiting media on the internet, and and different ways of exploiting uh, media on television have expanded and changed, and cable has changed and evolved. We've been able to South Park has really been on the front end of that ship, and so every you know, so we've done a series of of deals. The one that got the most attention. I mean there's a there was you know aside from the being the first video and aside from all that stuff uh you know in two thousand and two we were able to this is an interesting thing there there the uh you know basic cable programming programming that was made on cable was never syndicated on like wpix or local television uh, station kcal or whatever yeah you know the way i love lucy was uh-huh, uh-huh. so the so so the idea we, we came up with the idea to reverse that process and, and that actually worked. so so now you know so in 2004 through 2009 um uh the, the show was syndicated onto w you know the, to the local stations cross-country so, so that had never happened before where the show is to, and everybody thought because South Park was so filthy it wouldn't work, but it did. And then, uh, and then in, two, in 2007, the deal that got a lot of attention was that we um, we the digital rights of South Park, which are the streaming and the Netflix and the you know you know the, the, those rights those rights we we uh, those were put into a new company. Um, that was a joint venture between, uh, Trey and Matt and Viacom, which was, was, which is held and owned separately, which is a real unique deal on television and, uh, uh, has has been very, very, very successful. And then the the third thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up, is that, is then, then, uh, then we've also been able to do, and this is kind of the, 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 future media legal stuff that I'm interested in, we were able to, uh, to do a pretty, uh, a pretty interesting artist based private equity deal based on the uh, success of Boca of Mormon and Southpa Park with some 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 Wall Street guys uh, which was very well publicized at the end of 2012 so they're you know they have a, so they have a vehicle now called important studios which is a
2: which is a pretty big deal yeah, well, So as I suspected you were happy you'd be happier talking about others uh, than yourself but I'm gonna uh, Pin you down in our our remaining couple of minutes. Um, In the midst of all this work for your clients, you you wrote a phenomenal series of short stories. Uh, Just one quick review: Kirkus or Kirkus, I guess, a clear-eyed, finely wrought, and mordantly funny take on a modern predicament by a new writer with loads of talent. That that's you, Kevin Moore. So how did you even have time to to write nine incredible stories while you were doing all this other all this other stuff?
3: Well, I. You know, as you know, I've always, I've, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to write, and and fiction has always been my goal. I don't even own a screen. What's interesting for what I do is I don't even own a screenwriting program. I've noticed I hired to do any kind of television or film writing because I see how hard that is, and it's a whole different thing. But I have always been lo- in love with literature, and literature is sort of what saved me when I was younger, and and I love the, you know, the, the 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 sort of tradition of. Of a, you know, I'm a traditionalist. I love the sort of American short story and the 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 John O'Hara, John Updike, you know, Pennsylvania short story writer tradition. So, about five years ago, I decided just that I was going to dedicate a good portion of my week and uh and and, and just dedicated to fiction and writing and um and so i've been toiling away for five years and i have a and, you know and i have a novel uh that i'm working that i'm putting the fishing touches on and then i had i you know i cranked out a bunch of stories and then i decided that uh you know that i decided i decided that uh um you know that i, I picked these nine because well first of all you know if you're going to write a book of short stories you should make it nine stories in honor of jd salinger but (laughs) that's the first thing but then the second thing is i i I had nine i had nine stories with nine protagonists who were all men and they were all um in different stages of life and um i thought you you know the the collection would 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 be and you know and it goes from the youngest story the, the the youngest protagonist is in ninth grade and the oldest
2: Is that the plot to hold hands with Elizabeth Tremblay? That is that the, right? pl-
3: the, pro- the plot to hold hands with Elizabeth
2: Trembley. A great one, a frog, um, um, a <laughs> dissection, a final. I, can't, I don't know if I shouldn't give away that there's a kiss or not, but that, I think that was my uh, favorite. But I also like uh, Here Comes Mike. Any of this sort of, uh, it must have autobiographical pieces throughout, I would guess.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I think you you know. I think I think. I mean, I talked. I talked a little bit about this uh, the other night at a reading. But you know, I was paralyzed for a long time by some of the literary theory stuff that you learn in English class about not being influenced by people and and the 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 anxiety of influence and all that stuff. And then, you know, my desire to write and get this out of me uh, that I've had for so long, I finally just I finally just sort of chucked that. Uh, worry and decided to sort of bring all of my favorite influences kind of into the room to 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 work with me, and by doing that, you know I was I think
2: that helped me find my so, that helped me find my voice. It's uh it's tremendous. I I think we could talk about this for an hour. We're going to have you back. Um, before we go, Kevin, um, you've done cool work, very cool work. Something called Mending Kids International, uh, helping kids with who need surgery around the world, um, corrective transformational surgeries. How how did you get involved with that?
3: well the, the, there's a there's a bunch of folks in uh in Malibu where I live who have started this charity which uh in connection with children's Hospital in los angeles which uh you know there there's kids with soft palate. Type injuries uh, around the world, and, the, and there's some doctors who specialize in it. So the beginning of the program was bringing kids from from really the par- poorest areas in the world uh, to to Los Angeles to have the surgeries performed. The charity is, uh, has uh, expanded, uh, and, the, and the, there's some very 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 incredible people involved, and uh, and they've expanded the, the 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 base of services to also now do multiple surgical missions each year, where they
2: uh, saw China and, and all these. Amazing. Yeah. So, so, so,
3: so yeah. So, so the charity will send. They, you know, we can we can have a higher. Uh, there's a higher efficiency rate. So, the charity uh, can send uh, doctors and a number of volunteers to to you know to places like Panama and Ethiopia and and uh, and so a medical mission will go and then they just line the kids up. Who need these special surgeries and uh, and get it done? And there's a couple very there's a couple very uh, wonderful people uh, in, 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 in in the and area so if here.
2: People want to be involved. I don't want to quiz you, but is there a website that we can, people can go to? Yeah, I think if you
3: just if you just look up uh, Mending, Mending Kids International. Great, um, wow. that's the that's the site to look at. It's a wonderful
2: group. Excellent. And the book is at Amazon and other places and bookstores and stuff like well, that. Yeah,
3: uh, on Amazon, uh, Kevin Author dot com. Right. And uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any, any, awesome. uh, any, uh, any uh, it, it's in, in every form of ebook, uh, Kindle, right. and so
2: forth. Uh, well, listen, uh, great book. Uh, wish you all the best, Kevin. Thanks for being on, and continue good luck, and we'll have you back uh, next time. Ne- the next book uh, or something else going on, <laughs> great in your life, and we'll see you real soon. We appreciate you coming on, poly Thanks, thanks, Steve. Pleasure. pleasure to have Gene Sperling join us. Uh, He was the director of the National Economic Council and assistant to the president for economic policy in the Obama administration, just left not too long ago. Uh, He's the first person to serve as the NEC director uh, for two presidents. He also worked under President Bill Clinton uh, when we were friends and colleagues and I always admired Gene and his ability to deal with policy and communications and politics all rolled up in one. Uh, I was always a little jealous. He's a better tennis player than I am, but other than that, he's a is a wonderful guy. Uh, Gene, good to have you with us.
4: Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. We
2: we we talk a lot on the show about, uh, of course, the president and behind the scenes uh, in in the world. In the last week or so, of course, the Middle East is all kinds of trouble, and in Africa and all sorts of bad things going on. But what has the president done? He's focused himself on uh, jobs, on education uh... the economy and and that's something that you you know you've done very well over the years you're not there right now but it's been a pretty good week for the president in that regard
4: well steve i think that one of the things i can tell you very much about what the obama white house was like as i was NEC director was there was a very crisp focus that we keep our eye on the economic ball and that uh... you know our our uh chief of staff dennis mcdonough says you know we can't be we can't be like the uh, you know ten-year-olds playing soccer where everybody just runs to the crisis we all do pitch in on the big things immigration health care uh... we all look to do our parts but the key thing that is driven home to the economic team by, by president obama himself is that you keep your focus the world may change out there they may not cover us all the time but what but but that doesn't keep us from focusing on the jobs issue. And, and I think that uh, they do a good job in the White House of rewarding you for that. In other words, even if the focus is Iraq, even if the focus is Syria uh, for a week or two weeks, uh, there will be a, a real strong focus to say, congratulations to the economic team, even with everything going on. You know, they had a mission to launch this a certain manufacturing initiative they did. This week you saw, for example, something that we've been working on for a long time, which was partnering with the kind of makers uh, uh, initiative, which is the degree that we can combine entrepreneurship and manufacturing and do more right here to make jobs here, keep jobs here, not through protectionism, but through bringing together people who are working at universities, young entrepreneurs, uh, uh, people in manufacturing, and to have that what we call the makers' fair, almost like a science fair, that's something that's been in the works for a long time, and the idea is, yeah, yeah. You, know, you don't pull that off because something's happening. And right. even if it maybe doesn't get the press you'd hope for to something else's, you're sending a strong message to the American people. You've got your eye on the ball. You're focused on jobs. You're focused on fighting for location of jobs in the United States. It, it made a lot
2: of sense. Uh, let's hear from the president at the Maker Affair.
0: Across our country, ordinary Americans are inventing incredible things. And then they're able to bring them to these fairs, like makers fairs, uh, and you never know where this kind of enthusiasm and creativity and innovation uh, could lead.
2: It's interesting. I held up, was reading the New York Times yesterday on a page like a seven, and the top of the page I think may have been makers fair, and the bottom might have been Social Security. But in this, you know, it was all it was it was it was focused. It was domestic policy. Uh, I was very intrigued that even in the midst of all this going on, he was able to, as you say, keep the focus very disciplined. Um, Was it difficult? Uh, I would imagine with all the social media and all that goes on, bouncing and tweeting and all this stuff, it's hard to keep the focus. Did you ever, was that hard to do?
4: You know, I will say that for myself, uh, that's a focus, you know, I've learned to develop. I remember, Steve, I remember when we were going through the impeachment under President Clinton, he would say, you know, we can't help everything everybody else is going to do. All we can do is show the American people that we're here for the reasons they put us there. So that you have to almost have a faith and it has to have be part of the kind of management culture of a White House that you keep an eye on the ball. Other people are going to focus on, you know, the, the fight of the day, what happened to Eric Cantor, maybe what's going on a foreign policy issue is. But your job is to push the economic agenda forward. And so, you know, myself, I learned to do that even when we were going through impeachment. And you have to have that culture. In other words, the president has to send that signal to the chief of staff and his economic director. Uh, and then we have to then send it to our staff. And we all have to do it. And so, you know, it would be a common thing at a, for the chief of staff to compliment the economic team for staying focused on something like a maker's fair. And then you have to go back to your team Uh, not just your team in the White House, but at Commerce and and all the other places that are working on it and say, President, Chief of Staff are very pleased because we kept we did not let everything else happen, throw us off our game, which is what are we doing to create middle class jobs here in the United States and bring this and broaden this recovery and share this prosperity. And uh, so I think it really is a culture thing. And I have to imagine that that is not different than what happens in the best companies where they have to tell people you have to keep your eye on the ball. Maybe there's a crisis going on, but, you know, you still have to be delivering pizzas or, you know, whatever it is that that business does. And you have to stay at that core of your job. And so that's what we do. And that's the culture. And I think it helps that the fact that, you know, it is recognized and rewarded within the white house that you kept your focus Uh, on doing a good job on the on the economic things you're there to do even in the face of a million distractions.
2: Well it's it's so interesting and and earlier in the week um, he went to Pittsburgh and he talked about um, manufacturing innovation you know Pittsburgh is a working class place it's a sort of a theme of our show today but you know those people have been really coming back and and I think the technology innovation has been a huge positive impact there. Let's hear from the president in Pittsburgh.
0: Folks who 've come up with wonderful stuff, some products that they 're selling, some that they 've made for their uh, for themselves, students, entrepreneurs, uh, established business leaders let 's bring them to the White House so that they can share ideas and network a little bit
2: the, um, when uh, I want to just ask you um, social media has become such a big uh, part of uh, being proactive and, and the presidents and the White House site of course there wasn 't really a White House site in the early days of Clinton uh there's twitter there's images there's video all ready to go how much goes how much thinking when you're planning an event goes into thinking how are we going to get the message out
4: you know i i think there's no question that uh um you know at any era a president has to use the available you know communication tools they have and whether that is in olden times just the newspaper or whistle stop campaign tours or Uh, you know, uh, when I think you and I started, Steve, the focus was just making the evening news. Yep. Uh, And, you know, now it's so much broader, and we both know, those of us who have, you know, 19-year-olds and 8-year-olds like I do, know that you're not even going to reach a lot of people if you're not broadening out that. And I also think it's a way of getting in inside information. I think that's part of the culture of the Obama administration. I think something like the Makers Movement is something that we saw an excitement about, Uh, and part of that came through social media. The fact that there was this movement out there, and it was a movement that fit in With something President Obama and I talked about often and we focused on, and he challenged us in the economic team to do more of, which was that last decade was a decade where there was a lot of pessimism about outsourcing, that the U.S. maybe was going to lose jobs, that we weren't competitive in manufacturing because places like China and India could do things cheaper. And what's exciting about this period is that we are competitive for location again. We're competitive because partly wages have gone up in China, but we're competitive because of of, uh, uh, of productivity. We're competitive because of lower energy prices, and uh, and we can be competitive if we focus on this. So we looked at it as we have a little bit more wind at our back, and what are we going to do with that wind at our back? Are we going to? And our view was: let's give. That win more power, more momentum, and so the focus on manufacturing innovation institutes, the clusters, uh, the, what the president's done there is is really been incredibly innovative. The Maker's Fair is one more aspect. The Select USA Initiative, the United States government, more recruiting people to think about locating the United States. This, I think, is one of the will be one of the economic legacies of the Obama administration that he presided over and encouraged a period where. The focus went less on outsourcing and more on insourcing and competing for jobs. And one of the things you do is you keep beating on the same theme. And so you look for new ways to not only do it, but to communicate that. And the makersphere is one more way to stress job locations back, innovations back, invention, manufacturing back. We, the United States, can compete for the middle class jobs of the future. We can control our destiny. So this wasn't just the president. Focusing on uh, the event of the day or something economic, this was him really staying with uh, what is a really central theme of the Obama uh, economic uh, team Tell and us, the president. Most importantly,
2: that's it's, it's uh, it sounds it sounds like it is. Tell us, Gene. Um, it's the second term, uh, the latter half of the second term. Presidents traditionally, President Bush, President Clinton others before it's a it's a challenging time um, this has been a particularly challenging time with, with Congress how much of this now is sort of let's get some stuff you know let's the, the the administration wants to get some stuff done on its own they might use executive orders he might be the cheerleader in chief how much uh, uh, of that is sort of let's get some stuff
4: done there's no question I think uh, you know the president always likes to quote a line in and, in and, and, uh you know, famous movie where somebody says, who are you? And he says, I'm, I'm the guy who's doing my job. Who are you? Mm -hmm. And, and that, that, that's kind of what the attitude we have to take is we may not be able to control all the politics. We're going to keep fighting for legislation and immigration in important areas, but we have to wake up every day and ask, what can we do? And I think it's understanding the full power of the presidency, which is not just doing an executive order. It's about mobilizing. It's about focus. It's about how you use, resources you know the manufacturing innovation institutes i think they have them in germany and i think we've started them here in the united states we've passed no new legislation but we've put administration wide focus on it we work together with the fcc to to make to start wiring every school with high speed internet so that you could have kids every classroom actually having a mobile device so kids can be learning individually that's huge and we can do that without new legislation. The climate change, it was controversial, but the regulations on the power plants is a is a big thing. We uh, rallied uh, half of the fortune, you know, 50 companies to change their policies on hiring long-term unemployed. Some people would say that may be more important than some policy things you do, because they're the hires. And if they're taking, pledging not to, the, to ensure they don't discriminate against people because they're long-term unemployed, those can be important things so i think you know what we're really focusing on is we're not giving up on legislation but we're not going to be content to say that if we propose something and it fails we've done our job we're going to look for every way and there's nothing mysterious about it you're there to try to make people's lives better try to make the economy better and you can do that as the president says with the phone and the pen i like to think of it as mobilization you do everything the government can do but you do it in a way that you realize that there are other afters out there CEOs, college presidents, uh leaders of great innovative nonprofits and when they're all pulling in the same direction with national purpose, so you can
2: do big things. I, I love—I've always loved your energy and your enthusiasm, and your ability to tell tell it very clearly a message. And I love that you're saying we. Uh, you're still in the we mode. It's been—I uh, don't know—30, 60 <laughs> days a year uh, but you're in a—you're in a hopefully a, a period where you're taking a little bit of downtime before the next thing. Who knows what that will be? Are you getting a chance to catch your breath at all?
4: You know i you know I'm going to be totally honest in saying I did not know how I would feel I mean for people who don't know my situation, my <laughs> wife's t v writer, my wife and daughter had moved back to l a uh it was just you know commuting from l a to the White House Friday night to Sunday night was an impossible family situation, so you know this was something I needed to do as a dad and husband, but I thought maybe I would be uh you know down about it, but I have to say, I think that I was so beat and worn out, and, and I think I so treasure what I've had the last three months, which is a chance to be a full-time dad. Oh. I take my daughter to school. I pick her up. I take her to her afternoon activities, and I think that's a, I think it's the type of thing that a lot of working people never in their lives, particularly men, get a chance to do. No, that's... Be a total stay-at-home father for a while. So rather than feeling bad, I've been kind of almost you know, thinking, my lucky stars that life worked out in a way that I got to have this great opportunity as a father. So I have to say, I, I miss it to some degree, but, I also feel it's been a very special time with me and my 8-year-old daughter. Well,
2: that's that's great. I think our listeners uh, probably know that Gene is is, is really one of the hardest-working folks in in, in and around Washington. There was a a moment back in uh, in the Clinton era where I was over in the Cabinet Affairs office, and I I think I got a call from Jason Goldberg, who had been stolen by Gene, my wonderful uh, assistant, who's now gone into fame and fortune. And Jason said, oh, Gene has a slot for you, a time for you. Can you come over at 1220 a.m.? And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, that's uh, And when we're scheduling at 1220 a.m., uh, you know, you're dealing with a busy, uh, busy guy. Um, Gene, tell I us. I have to say, as one <laughs>
4: gets older, I, I don't think I scheduled any meetings after 8 p.m. I still, I'm a hardworking person, but I, uh, there were younger people out there working harder than I was this time around. Hopefully, I was working smarter and wiser. Uh,
2: un- understood. Um, when you see um, books come out by, uh, uh, Secretary Geithner or Secretary Paulson and others about the the the, the crisis which you kind of came in in the middle of. Um, how do you feel when you when you read it when you hear about it? Does it make you want to write a book? Does it make you want to jump up and down? How do you how do you react to the to books like
4: that? You know, I think that in terms of on the financial crisis, I, you know, I think watching Kim in his book tour, you know, I think there'll always be uh, this tension out there, which. You have to somewhat understand, if you're, for those of us, which is that um, if you were there, you were incredibly aware of how difficult the choices were, how great the risks were. And so to, under Secretary Geithner's leadership, to have made so many uh, hard, difficult choices, unprecedented, to see the country not go into a depression, but actually to recover, to come back. To actually see the tarp instead of costing $700 billion, perhaps returning a profit for the American people, and then to still see that people you know, don't completely recognize how important that is, and to actually understand why, understand that from their perspective, they still feel, and I can understand how they feel, that somehow, because we had to stabilize the financial community, we were not hard enough or tough enough on some of the people they, uh, they thought were responsible, and to understand that we were never, ever trying to you know, in any way worry about anything about what was best for the Amer- average American and what we could do best to prevent the Great Depression, to prevent uh, people from losing their, their life savings more than they had. And when you did that, that did require at times stabilizing our financial system and I think that will always seem unfair to some people and we understand that it seemed unfair to us but I guess what we knew that was harder for others to do is that you 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 were choosing among bad options and you chose the least bad option you can it worked Uh, and I think history will be very you know generous to President uh, Obama and Secretary Geiger but I think you know you have to understand that for a lot of people who couldn't possibly understand the intricacies of every choice that they'll always feel a little bit that somehow uh, it wasn't done in as just a way, and I think we have to. I think it's like the Kipling line: you have to, uh, you know, have confidence in yourself, but 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 you know, be understand why people feel that way and and have some sympathy with it too.
2: Any uh, any book in your future, Gene?
4: You know, I'm. Uh, I think for me, I'm more in the type who writes. If I write, it's more on policy. Uh, You know, I I think that I I don't uh, plan at this time to write a kind of uh, uh, reflection piece on what happened. You know, I'm glad people like Secretary Paulson and Secretary Geithner have written that. I think it will be helpful for people who go through financial crisis, Uh, helpful for them who have to make the hard choices, helpful for them to understand that when you make the right choices and do the right thing, it may not be well received by the public and that that's part of the responsibility you take when you take tough jobs at tough times but i think for myself right now uh... i think i'll focus more on writing about policy and maybe at a later time in my life uh, you know do the reflections backwards All right.
2: um... Uh, as we wrap up i have to ask you know i was uh, sports is a big passion of mine and, and i think yours Uh, One of the other things we saw this week was the vice president in Brazil at the World Cup and how that really also helped keep the focus away from some of the stuff, um, the the tough stuff in the Mideast. Um, How important do you think uh, the Olympics, the uh, World Cup, that can be in terms of um, creating an image for the president and the administration?
4: Well, I think that we always have to make decisions with people's time. And, uh, you know, when is it good to send the president or first lady or vice president to the Olympics or to an event? And those are part of the balancing that you have to do. There's actions you have to do. But the fact is, in this technological type of world, you can be sure that the vice president was working on Ukraine, working on foreign policy the whole time. But I think the World Cup, there's, there's something special about that, which is, you know, one of the important things that I learned, and you learn when you're United States government, is that you don't ever want to, in some way, portray, uh, you know, or give life to the sense that somehow the United States is arrogant. We're not arrogant. We're uh, a country that wants partnership, has great respect for other countries. Well, the World Cup uh, is the great sports event other than the Olympics in the world, as much as we cherish the World Series and my favorite, the NBA championship, uh, I think think that for the Vice President of the United States to be at the World Cup uh, sends another important signal, not just about image, but about about our partnership and our respect for not just our traditions, but for really what is the greatest sporting tradition. Uh, that probably brings together the developing countries, intermediate countries, advanced countries all together on literally equal footing on a playing field. I think it 's good for the United States to show that we respect that, take it seriously, and uh, I think that that is actually a positive and important thing for Ford administration to do, and symbolism does matter.
2: Well, Gene, uh, those are you know great final world words. It's been a, a a pleasure to have you on. I wanted to have, have you on for a while. You're really a, a great communicator and thinker about uh, these issues. Um, we appreciate your time. Um, we hope to see you back, in maybe we'll see you in government again sometime down the road. But for the meantime, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I wish you all the best, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you real soon.
4: Well, thanks for having me, and I'm happy to come back anytime Gene, thanks so, so
2: much. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. We'll talk to
0: you soon.
2: Peter Carlin, uh, thank you for joining us. You are the author of the recent uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, biography called *Bruce*. Uh, You've also written about Paul McCartney. Um, You've written about uh, the Beach Boys. You've uh, you've been a magazine reporter. Very busy, busy guy. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. The uh, I got to thinking about you a little bit. I was up in Albany for for a Bruce show a few weeks ago, and his tour was wrapping up I'm like let's see if we can track down Peter and and have a conversation the book was wonderful and got so many great reviews and you you got to some interesting kernels of stuff that people uh, just never knew about How, how do you how did you get you how did you dive into this how did you come upon the Bruce book
1: well um it sort of started I think in when I was you know 15 years old in 1978 and I saw Bruce on the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour and I'd been familiar with his music and, and owned that record, but something about the, the show, you know, sort of spun my head around and, and ever since then he's his voice has been a big part of my consciousness and uh and uh you know, and a part of my sort of ongoing um attempts to comprehend uh society and politics and life. Um you know.
2: <laughs> well that's a that's a great way to, to look at it and and, and um you you were born in Syracuse, uh, which is sort of Bruce country. We've talked a lot today about Pittsburgh and New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So there's a sort of a, a working class Bruce thing. But then you ended up uh, in Oregon and out in Washington State. How did how did you make the jump out there?
1: Well, you know, actually, uh, to be even more Brucey, my pop grew up in Atlantic City. So, oh boy. Uh, yeah, Jersey Shore runs in my blood. Uh, well, you know, my dad. Uh, we moved to out west when I was one and a half. You know, so I didn't have a whole lot to say about it. And, <laughs> and I grew up in Seattle, and uh, and and you know, I spent some time in other places here and there. Uh, you know, for my five years in New York City, and and after you know, after when I was working for People Magazine, and uh, uh, you know, so I've just kind of just grew up out here, and 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 really. Uh, yeah, you know, feel like this is kind of my homeland. Though I really didn't love living in New York, so couldn't didn't complain about that. Uh, I did. I did. Oh, in did. fact, I uh, love New York. Uh, all right. Well,
2: I don't know if you would love it today. It's uh, it's very, uh, it's very warm out there. A little, uh, <laughs> little, little humid out here today. Um, so you've written about it's Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen. What do they, do they, what do they have in common?
1: Well, they're brilliant. You know, I mean, they're really huge, and and, and also they're they're, uh, you know, they're a huge part of popular culture and the popular uh, narrative over the last forty fifty plus years you know going back with with both you know all those guys uh... you know and that is always intriguing to me because there's something about that interplay between culture and society and politics that i find just fascinating the way that they kind of uh, you know, tangled together and fly apart, and and how you know, popular culture in particular seems to be so, kind of, uh, in some ways a, a reflection of or or kind of the the you know the antithetical um, portrait of 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 you know what's being. I mean, you know, said in, in, in Washington d c and among kind of the, the country's leadership, there's such an anti-establishment element to to pop music at times that it's you know it, its all, there's always interesting commentary there, and I think uh, you know a real fascinating sense of of you know how the world is spinning for the or you know relatively ordinary people who, who walk you know walk through it every day.
2: Um, it's interesting. I um, you look at back to Bruce's music, you talked about darkness. Um, the early days there was lots about youth and vitality and girls and cars and all that good stuff and then um, we come to the sort of 80 80 and 84 and 80 we're talking about the river and and really starting to get some maturity what's tell us a little bit your perspective on the 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 Bruce the growth in him and when he started really getting into issues of the day
1: well I think Bruce always had a very working-class consciousness and I think you know, uh, you know, as you noted, those first two and three records are are pretty kind of, you know, apolitical in the sense. I mean, they reflect the concerns and more of a personal struggle than a larger kind of so, social or cultural struggle. Though you can pick up elements of that too. I mean, Bruce wrote an entire series of, you know, anti-Vietnam songs um, before he got his contract to, you know, with Columbia Records as a solo artist and um you know and so on the first record you've got like lost in the flood is kind of the culmination of all those songs it gets it's a very dark and surrealist portrait of life in a country that's kind of you know as a result of the war to some extent is has been sort of pushed into some sort of moral kind of fog um and you know and in the same way like on darkness on the edge of town um that is much more clearly set in what's obviously a very working-class world and um... you know and so that kind of consciousness is beginning to kind of find its form but it didn't really you know and again is 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 taken to a whole different iteration in on the river um... and then on nebraska um, which is becoming all the more sort of explicitly political and by the time he got to born in the USA and you know and working on that record in in 82 and 83 and and then 84 um he really i think became all the more sort of uh drawn into the political discussion and the political narrative because i think he felt so alienated from Reagan and and what the Reagan administration was presenting to the world as kind of an American face. Well, it's fascinating
2: that, what happened with that, right? Because all of a sudden his music is being used by Ronald Reagan, who he clearly did, you know, Reagan kind of misinterpreted it. George Will sort of teed it up and said to you, Reagan, use use this language in your speech. Let's let's hear a little bit of that. America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope in songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. So he got a lot of applause, um, but we we know that it wasn't uh, what the the lyrics of that song weren't what Reagan thought they were.
1: You know, I mean, George Will I think was a big part of that because he wrote that column about yeah. the street band and you know or about Bruce. Um, You know, what did he call him, like a Yankee Doodle Springsteen or something like that? And it was like, and in a sense, I mean, he did... uh, You could say that there is a a very sort of uh, deep-seated sort of Americanism about, about Bruce and about that band and how they were particularly, you know, how they were working in those days and what they kind of represented. But what they didn't pick up on and what George Will particularly missed, I mean, just radically misinterpreted, was the born in the usa song as being patriotic which is kind of actually it's like one of the most subversive songs to ever be in the top ten right right because basically you know that chorus of born in the usa which george will heard as a grand affirmation of of all things american is actually grows increasingly bitter and ironic as the song goes on because the verses Uh, you know, that that chorus chant of Born in the USA, I was born in the USA, is sort of commenting upon these verses which go into great depth on how this guy who's a veteran has just been screwed over and over again by the country and has been left, as he says, with, you know, nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, you know. And so how you could listen to the chorus then, it's like if you only listen to the chorus, then it sounds patriotic but uh, boy is it is it not miss the mark let's hear a little bit uh, of
2: the song good i was actually at that show in, D- in dublin uh believe it or not two years ago my wife took me for a big birthday and we were at both those shows so i was wow. happy to see that yeah that was a very cool surprise from emily so we'll uh, we'll chalk it up um it, but of course this song then weeks later uh walter mondale um sort of said hey wrong uh this doesn't make this isn't right so what did he? What, tell us how the mondale thing came together
1: Well, one way or the other, the message that came down through the Mondale campaign, or at least as it was interpreted in the media, was that he had been, Springsteen had actually endorsed him. But, of course, at that point, Springsteen wasn't endorsing nobody for nothing. And uh, so the the Mondale campaign had to take that back as well. Um, Because Bruce didn't really want to be sort of used as a political anything for anybody at that point. He didn't want to be weaponized in that way. He wanted to exist in his own you know, sort of rock and roll, you know, literary rock and roll world, um, which is a reasonable expectation, I think, um, and particularly didn't want to have his image or his message kind of twisted into other people's narratives, as it were. And so he reacted very badly against that. But uh, but I think clearly uh, uh, Springsteen's political sympathies lay more with uh with you know Mondale's platform than with Reagan
2: right and 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 it was funny I was a young advance man uh, back then in 1984 and I was did the event that Mondale in New Brunswick you know said Bruce may, may have been may have been born to run but he wasn't born yesterday yeah uh, I remember and, that. and and I think it sort of hope I think that sort of put it to uh, put it to an end um so then we we go through the um, the 80s um, the Bruce sort of is doing more around then around the food banks and and hunger and some real you know kind of issue uh, issues but not yet really jumping full throttle into politics.
1: Yeah. He he sort of had his fits and starts. I mean, he 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 played at that no nukes uh Oh yeah. the uh, you know the, the the anti-nuclear power uh series of shows in in 1979 and uh and then got very deeply into the uh the Vietnam veteran movement and stuff and and you know and even as he focused on food banks and veterans causes, uh you know, he would also lend his name to uh sort of more labor-based um, issues and, you know, and protests. Uh, I remember, I think it was GE that was, I may be wrong about the company, I think it was GE that was taking a plant out of, uh, uh, at, out of New Jersey somewhere that had been sort of a fundamental part of the community that it was in the middle of. Um, which was very similar to what happened to, in Springsteen's little town of freehold when the uh... Karagosian rug company which had been there for decades and had really been sort of an economic power for the community uh... just abruptly you know kind of left town to go down to down south where there were more pleasing union laws or something did um...
2: when you when you writing about this and discovering all this were you spending time with Bruce on the on the book or did he cooperate much or how did that all play out
1: yeah you know I worked on the book for about a year and a half and then without any cooperation from those guys though you know they knew I was out there and they knew what I was doing and then very suddenly I got a call from uh, John Landau Bruce's manager and he said hey you know let's let's have a conversation and so uh, we met up in New York the next week and, uh, and suddenly they were kind of all in, you know, and, uh, opened up every door I needed. And Bruce became a big part of the, uh, of my reporting. And, and I did get to spend time with him.
2: The, uh, the story, I'm, I'm a drummer from way back, but the story about Max, uh, needing, uh, guitar, uh, drum lessons to stay in the band, uh, did that, that was pretty interesting to hear.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, but I guess, you know, I mean, I think part of it was that he, uh, had become so accustomed to playing live with Bruce and Bruce, you know, like a lot of bands, things kind of, you know, kind of speed up and slow down a little bit from verse to verse, just sort of depending on the tone and, you know, and the excitement of the moment and that kind of thing. And he, uh, wasn't able to, at that point at any rate, he had to relearn or remind himself how to kind of become a more reliable, I think, uh, timekeeper but uh but you know you flow with the band and and so uh yeah but that was a, a sort of a surprising inside story
2: and they uh so from then for many years the uh, you know he broke up the band uh, i think a quote that i saw was that he was sort of bruised out uh mm-hmm. and um and he's doing some writing but now we're in the we're in the early 2000s and uh 911 happens um, and and not too long after the rising album comes out and tell us about that
1: period for Bruce and and what he was writing about Well, he got back into the, the he he got back together again with the East Street Band in in 1999 kind of tentatively at first. Uh but they really found their traction again and and he went back to playing to those huge arenas and really kind of being on the main stage of the culture and uh you know and then when 9/11 happened um I think he sort of realized or came to understand that his voice and his presence had become kind of a significant part of American culture you know that he had come to represent a kind of working class strength and everyday americanism that that was an important voice for people to hear and um especially in the court you know in the wake of nine eleven you know there's that famous story he tells of the guy in the parking lot who drives by and just shouts out hey we need you now and that i think was the headwaters for you know the feeling the mood the ideas that that got him into the rising which was you know very much in, in some of its songs at any rate very much a reaction to the terrorist attacks and you know the courage of the people you know the first responders and the people who tried to help and um... and then i think also the darkness that kind of settled over the country um, afterwards and he tells the stories those kind of political stories at least at that point in much more of a kind of uh sort of allegorical way um and sometimes those songs you know they seem to be they could be political they could be you know love songs or songs about relationships but uh but his focus on on community and and kind of the sort of the the currents and undercurrents is you know, is always very profound, Uh, you know, and when that record got released, I mean, people took it as a kind of a, you know, philosophical mission statement or some sort of grand, you know, public edifice, and there was a lot of very odd commentary about it from people who were either, you know, misinterpreting willfully sometimes (laughs) what he, what he had to say. I remember one column in particular, I can't remember if it was by, um, what's his name, uh, Tucker Carlson or uh, that other, um, golly, I forget his name right now, um, and basically asserting that uh, in this kind of review analysis of the record, there's a tune called The Fuse, and this dude who wrote about it said that, well, thought it was about a riot, you know, that was about to happen, yeah. and it's like, obviously, if you listen to that song, it's this kind of like couple hot for each other in a <laughs> hotel room somewhere. It's like, dude, like, what, are, what Did could you possibly be thinking? Misinterpretation. I'm reminded
2: uh, around that era, the '99 shows you were talking about. You know, it was also a time when Bruce's, uh, you know, his fans were getting a little older. And I remember having, you know, young kids, and we all the, the guys would get together and go to the shows, and it was sort of like, wow, this is a moment of sort of release. And then uh-huh. within a few years, we were taking our kids to the shows and, and that's right. like this generational thing is is very powerful for him
1: yeah I think so I mean I think also when you talk about his his work becoming much more explicitly political and his actually kind of signing on to endorse particular candidates yep. um, you know a lot of that happened or, bec- or really took shape after his children were born and you know when I spoke to Bruce about it he said up front yeah you know that was really kind of a part of it You know, sort of understanding. You know, seeing himself finally as a caretaker of a generation, or at least, you know, his part of a generation.
2: Well, let's hear. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peter. Yep.
1: Yeah, and and feeling the need to 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 take things from sort of a a theoretical kind of allegorical type of of position to a much more literal, like this is what I believe should happen. So let's see
2: uh, what he had to say about uh, President Obama.
0: It's crunch time now. The president's job. Our job, yours, and mine, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, rich, poor, black, brown, white, gay, straight, soldier, civilian, is to keep that hope alive, to combat the cynicism and apathy that is out there, and to believe in your power and our power to change our lives and the world that we live in. So let's go to work tomorrow. And the day after, and the day after that, let's re-elect President Barack Obama to carry our standard forward Woo! towards the America that awaits us. That awaits us. This is a song called "Land of Hope and Dreams."
2: Let's. Uh, that's uh, about as clear uh, an endorsement, obviously, uh, as we uh, as we can as you can get. Yeah. Um, um, and he then later on. Um, you know, they've gotten to know each other, I guess, pretty well. And um, Obama honored him at the, at the Kennedy Center, uh, you know, not too much, uh, not too much later. Um, let's hear from Obama talking about Bruce.
0: Along with his house-rocking, earth-shaking, East Street band, at 60 years old, he's still filling stadiums, still whipping fans into a frenzy, still surfing the crowd, still jumping off pianos and still reaching new fans and still being nominated for Grammys. Uh, it's been a long road from that stage at Stone Pony and Ashbury Park to this stage today. But this much we know, after more than 30 years and 120 million albums sold, Bruce Springsteen is still one cool rockin' daddy. The,
2: uh, well, that was very uh, kind words from the president. Uh, I'm not sure we're seeing a lot of Bruce jumping on pianos recently, but he's still putting on amazing uh, three-hour shows. Just came off the road after two years, so and hopefully we'll see him Later this year, we, we, Peter, we were, you and I were kind of offline talking about the various songs that are about issues that Bruce talks about. And, and I was just kind of going through 41 shots Land of Hope and Dreams, We Take Care of Our Own, High Hopes, The River, Born in the USA, We Talked About Death to My Hometown, uh, Youngstown, Factory, Atlantic City. Uh, so many of his songs are about um, issues. Um, do, where does he, does he, does he read a lot? Does he uh, watch TV? Does he meet a lot of people? How does he? How does he get himself going on these on these issues?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think all those things you just mentioned. He definitely reads a ton, um, and he's a big reader of, of you know of, of literary fiction, of course, um, and has often been inspired by that. But also, you know, I mean, he consumes the media like everybody. You know, he reads the daily papers, and and uh, you know, and, and and has always enjoyed TV. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about that, um, uh, and so. Um, uh, it's you know so that's you know he's a guy like everybody else i mean he just picks up the stuff that we all do except i think you can basically take the internet out of that at least last when i asked him about something that happened on the or that was on the internet he just stopped me mid-sentence and says i don't go on the internet so <laughs> probably thought, a well, good probably but then good. he <laughs> but then he started posting like recently began putting stuff up on on instagram so uh so maybe he's changed his position. Well, but. we talked about that earlier with uh, Gene Sperling,
2: how the president is now using social media and Instagram and all kinds of uh, ways to get the message out. So, And the yeah. show thinks about imagery and messaging, so I guess Bruce uh, has to do to to get the word out. Um, the reviews of this book were, were fantastic. Uh, Rolling Stone called it an astute, engaging account. Um, New York Times, an honest portrayal of the rock and roll legend um Entertainment Weekly which I which I love Carlin delivers the book Springsteen fans have been waiting for that had to be uh very gratifying for you uh, when uh,
1: when you went out on your book tour and sold all your books Oh yeah of course you know I mean you spend a good. lot of time <laughs> working on stuff and and hoping that someone's going to you know connect with it or get what you're trying to do and everything but the and then the feedback was really uh was really was really affirming, as as you said. So did you, you know, hear from Bruce or John Landau or Max or anything oh yeah. like that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm still in touch with those guys. So you know, and it was, and, and that's that's a, that's pretty affirming unto itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were looking for an honest portrayal, really, and uh, emphasized repeatedly, um, particularly Bruce, that uh, that he wanted that you know, and he told me this literally. He said, if you find anything that, you know, if you, if you didn't put something in the book just because you thought it would make me uncomfortable or, uh, you know, it would hurt my feelings, put it in. And, uh, you know, and that was a real, you know, I mean, I already had done that. I didn't really pull any punches because I didn't want to hurt Bruce's feelings. <laughs> but there were one or two lines or quotes or whatever that I kind of held back on because I thought they were a little too... Uh, uh you know, just a bit much, you know, like the point had been made, and it didn't need to get into this level of of hurtfulness or whatever, but then I ran a couple of them by him after he said that, and he was like, "Yeah, put it in, you know, put wow. it in, put it in, so that was cool, you know, and you're a
2: great, well, he's a transparent guy, and I guess the last uh, ten years or so even even more so, um, what's your sense? will we see him on the road later this year?
1: I don't know that he's going to be touring, but something's up because there was a very compelling, actually quite a beautiful photograph that turned up on uh, Bruce's website, brucespringsteen.net, that um, it's just this sort of surrealist portrait of somebody who seems to be wielding a hatchet on top of a big i you know i i'm not looking at it right now um pile of wood or rocks or stones or a hilltop a hillock maybe it's a hillock Mm. and it just says coming soon so Bruce has always been working on music and i know there's one album in particular that he's been uh that he's been um that he had been working on before he made (laughs) we take care of our own and um or excuse me the wrecking ball record and um and so that was has, was really close to being ready to go. So maybe that's what's he, coming
2: up. The pro- he is so prolific. I mean, we could talk about this forever, but think, I mean, he's writing and performing and doing It's It's all, this, all at the same time. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, the food banks, uh, you know, I love that he's focused. We'll do a shout-out for the food banks in New Jersey and other places where uh, he's always sort of encouraging people to, to give uh, when they leave the concerts and so we'll give a shout out to that Um, I guess the song that you know we'll wrap up with is uh, is really become one of my favorites uh, but land of hope and dreams and what's your what's your you know that that's one he's playing you know almost all the time now and it seems to really resonate with the crowds and and it seems like
1: with Bruce yeah you know that was really that song which appeared during that reunion tour was kind of the closing piece of uh, of those shows um, w- really signified um, something important at the time. I think about the the, the, reform- the Reformation of the band and his feelings for sort of a mission statement for where he was going to go next creatively and in terms of his vision. And um, and and these days, I think in particular, particular um, in the wake of the deaths of Danny Federici and that Clarence Clemens. You know, this idea, uh, you know, it's just, it sort of represents a kind of commitment and a kind of, you know, vision and dream of the world that we could live in, you know, I mean, as he talks about the America that's waiting for us.
2: You'll come back, I hope. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Certainly, Bruce is one of my favorites, but your other work is is terrific, too, and you were very kind to spend some time talking Bruce, talking about some societal issues, um, and we definitely
1: appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
0: Grab your ticket and your suitcase Thunder's rolling down the track Don't know where you're going now But you know you won't be back Well, darling, if you're weary